Hi, I'm Autumn Duralt Arkapa, and I was a cinematographer on Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and this is the Go Creative Show. Today's episode is sponsored by Sony Venice. The Sony Venice has been used in more than 400 high-end feature films and productions across the world. For more information on the Sony Venice, visit sonycine.com. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Autumn Durald Arkapod, the director of photography for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. So that is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Of course, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And here's the thing. If you are just listening to us, that's great. And we love that. And that's fantastic. But I encourage you to go to our YouTube and watch the show because when you watch the show, you get to see our guest in person. You can see their facial expressions, their body motions. It just it adds a whole new dimension to the show. And it's really a great way to experience Go Creative Show and our interviews. So you can check that out at YouTube, Go Creative Show. Of course, you can get to all of our spots if you head over to gocreativeshow.com. And with that, let's jump into it because there's so much to talk about here. With Autumn Durald Arkapod, the director of photography for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. All right, I want to welcome Autumn Durald Arkapod for coming on the show today. Autumn, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just before we started recording, you had mentioned that we almost had you on for Loki, mm. which is just such a beautiful show. I mean, that just, we don't really have tons of time to talk about Loki, yeah. and I mean, really, we're here to talk about Wakanda forever, but um, it was just nice that we kind of like, we were like two ships passing in the night. We yes. almost met for Loki, but I'm yes. um, glad to have you here today. Pleasure. Let's talk about the look of the film, because it's, it's dark, you embrace the shadows, and there's actually a great quote that I found of yours. Let me see if I can pull it up here, because I put it in here and I really, really liked it. It was from an article that you did. You said, for me, light shouldn't fall everywhere. A character should be coming in and out of light like it happens in real life. And such a simplistic message, but it really resonated with me. And I think it does reflect the film. Like you are employing this strategy in Wakanda forever. And I'd just like for you to kind of talk about that, your overall lighting philosophy as it is to this film and maybe just your particular style too. Yeah, I mean, I came up, you know, appreciating the work of Conrad Hall and Harris Savides. Like, these were kind of two of my favorites, you know, in watching their films. Um, and, you know, their their lighting is a character. And also, it's very emotional. You know, like, if you're just looking at the lighting, you relate to it on an emotional level. Um, it's also doing something for you, even besides the story and the actors. Um, and so I, you know, I've always tried to achieve that kind of sensibility where, you know, I'm lighting spaces, making spaces look real. Um, you know, there's contrast within the space. If an actor wants to go and, you know, uh, block, if it's being blocked from the corner or move over here or move over there, they can play with the light. Um, but number one, that it feels like a real space um, motivated by some natural source. And obviously you can make natural um, environments look a little more stylized as well, which those two DPs have done um, in some of their work. So, you know, I always want it to be a character. And so when I was in film school, I always kind of paid attention, learned light, just always 
looked at light and spaces when I was traveling. Um, you know, was a big fan of just looking at photography and just always paying attention to it and trying to like see how to do it, right? How to achieve something that you found in your natural environments. Um, and then fast forward, it's like, you know, I think if it's very important to you as a DP, um, you know, it, it becomes this through line in your work, right? You have a, a sensibility and a visual style. And I find that, you know, if you tend to like things a little moodier or if you prefer top light or, um, you know, you use haze as a, you know, to accentuate light in your scenes, you know, all of these things you kind of pick up as your career gets bigger. Um, and then I work with, you know, the same crew often, um, which is also great because you have a taste level that you're trying to achieve. And when you surround yourself with like-minded filmmakers, um, you know, it, it elevates your work. So, yeah, I think I've always just had a really close relationship to it. Um, and I find in this film, you know, more than, um, you know, ones that I'd done in the past because it's much bigger, you know, Ryan was really wanting to embrace that. And, um, you know, this there's so much sorrow within this story um, that I think having a moodier tone and levels of contrast on a face um, is appreciated and helps, um, you know, accentuate his storyline. So, um, yeah, it was really fun to get to do that on this type of level, you know, but that takes a lot of skill and a lot of great crew, um, a lot of patience and time to kind of, you know, decide to achieve that type of look on a bigger scale, right? Um, but I have fantastic crew, and it was something that we were all kind of, you know, supporting and also post-supporting that idea as well, right? Because some of those big environments, there's, um, you know, CG done after the fact. So you work with them on how you like lighting on set so they can accentuate that in their extensions and stuff like that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about visual effects in Wakanda Forever because certainly it's there, obviously, mm. but I feel like you guys didn't, I don't know, it, it doesn't appear to be leaned into heavily. It seems like you're almost trying to hide it. You're trying to mask it. You're trying to make see things feel and seem as realistic and as grounded as possible, which I, not being like a giant, crazy, you know, movie, um, superhero movie fan, uh, it really is resonating with me. And I think that is what's giving this movie that edge. It's giving it mm -hmm. that super, super mass appeal. Um, but I want to specifically talk about visual effects and how yourself and cinematographers sort of in, in that world doing big, giant movies like this, how do you approach visual effects? Like what what, what is the cinematographer's role in scenes like that with big, giant visual effects? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all under our umbrella, right? Um, I was very fortunate enough to do Loki prior to Panther, right? So, you know, my introduction to visual effects in the, in the Marvel world started there. So, you know, I learned a lot. I had a great experience. And that experience kind of, you know, um, shaped the framework with how I, as a DP, like to um, work with the post supervisor and I'm sorry, the VFX supervisor. So essentially we started off that project is like, how much can we do in camera? You know, let's do as much as we can in camera. And that relationship's also, um, it's very important to have the production designer involved as well. Right. So it's like, even when I'm talking to the VFX supervisor, you know, it, it, it's all this combination of like, how much can we do to ground that photography on set? Um, so that they have stuff to work off of, you know, uh, moving forward. So I had a great experience um, on Loki. And when I came into this one, um, Jeff Bauman, who's amazing, who also worked on the first one, 
gave me a call when he heard I was going to be um, doing the project and we just got to know each other. Like we just had a talk, you know, um, to figure out, you know, just who we were, taste level, like, you know, how he could support me. Like he was there for me, right? I was there um, to help him, right? Because we're obviously, it's not, you don't want to ever come at it like, you know, we can do that later. We can just do that in post, you know? Um, it's mostly about like, can I give this person as much as I can in the photography so that later he has a reference and later he has something to ground um, his reality into it as well, the extension. Um, so that was always my approach. It was always like, you know, let's do as much as we can. Let's work together. Um, how can I help you, you know, on the day if he's asking me for things or um, adjustments, um, you know, he explaining what that would help do, right, you know. Um, so your your goal is to not have it be a situation where it's just an actor in a big giant green world with nothing real. Uh, yeah, I mean that happens, right? You know, I mean it it does. Um, but you try and do as much as you can. You try and uh, production get production design involved and see you know what elements you can put in the frame you know to create mid ground, right? Um, so it's always a discussion. But yes, you are left sometimes with nothing. Um, you know, if you're picking something up to, you know, like in additional, for instance, and you just have the actor and you have the plate, um, you know, in that instance, um, you know, when you're doing the plates in principle, you're trying to do the best job you can knowing that, you know, you're photographing these plates for the purpose of potentially going back in the future to use them. Um, but yeah, I think it's always a discussion. And, you know, as far as the visual language and the format, you know, we picked a Sony Venice. Um, we modified some T-series anamorphics. And these are very particular lenses, you know. Um, I, I like my lenses to have a lot of character and I embrace the anamorphic elements. Um, and Ryan was very open to this format um, uh, this time around. And so, you know, you want to have those conversations early on with VFX so that they can, you know, learn those lenses, chart them, map them, um, you know, see the particulars of them, flares, how the fall off reacts, um, you know, how far it goes, you know, to the center of frame. And there's all these different things and, and they embraced it and they went out of their way to do, you know, extra charts and extra um, mapping just to make sure they had all the info to give the vendors. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, what, what people I think sometimes forget is that, you know, when you, after you shoot, everything that they're left with, um, you know, they need to create around your photography, right? Um, and you want all of that extension to match and you want it to feel like the same world. You don't want to be looking at a foreground, um, you know, uh, plate captured in camera and then the background doesn't match, right? It's sharper. It looks spherical. It doesn't look anamorphic. Um, so there are all these things that, you know, they go out of their way to have these conversations with you. And there's such a huge collaboration and uh, it was very rewarding for me. Um, to have their help and to be a part of it and, you know, be in the room and be able to be invited to, you know, um, all those meetings and to work with them in post too. I was there every day in post when I did my DI um, and I enjoyed that process very much. You've been quoted in saying that, you know, the the visual effects for Wakanda Forever were inspired by Terminator 2 and Alien, which it's like, I see those, I, I think about those two movies and I'm like, yeah, they, really, and maybe it's just our age demographic, I'm not sure, but it feels like that is the pinnacle of like the perfect blend between visual effects and this kind of like film grounded in humanity. And I think you guys did a, a really good job of that, um, which uh, which isn't always done in movies mm. like this. It's just not. Sometimes it, it's supposed to be so fantastical. It's supposed to be 
you know, you really can't connect to it because it's just such a different world. But I yeah. think you guys did such a great job of that. Um, and I think those are two great, you know, inspirations for this film for sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it starts at the top, right? You know, um, Ryan wanted it to feel um, real. Like he wanted the world to feel, to have texture, to have the audience be able to relate to it, to relate to the grief, but also relate to these, you know, these expansive worlds that don't really exist in our reality, right? You know, um, so I think having that um, kind of directive from the top, you know, in, in discussing our references, but also in choosing lenses and format and working with VFX, um, you know, I'm always thinking that, you know, how to protect the image so that it feels real and it looks real, right? If I'm being bumped, then the audience is going to as well. How can I help do that? Um, and that's all departments, right? Um, you know, our production designer is amazing. Our costume designer is amazing. Um, my crew is amazing. So we're always, that's always in our mind, right? Um, what can we do here to make it feel real, like those references? Because those, I think that's always helpful if you don't get bumped by the fact that you're looking at visual effects. And it does happen, right? You know, you're, you're in a situation sometimes where it's tricky, right? You have people flying in the air and doing a lot of things that we're not used to seeing in reality. So, um, but I feel like, you know, the scenes that work really well that have um, more VFX in them, so many people went out of their way to try and make that um, blend, you know, um, and we had lots of conversations and meetings. And I think uh, that's what the audience is reacting to, because I think they feel like um, it does feel real, it looks real, you know, in some of those crazy scenes where you have people flying in the air and, you know, there's high speed, but then they, you know, falling out of the sky into a fight sequence where there's a whale jumping over um, a free, um, a bridge. Yeah, there's quite a bit going on that you don't normally see as you walk around. Yeah, you don't really have a reference for that. So, exactly. you know, if, if I'm giving you the first reference, right, I would say that, like, this is pretty successful. I mean, I thought that looked pretty great. They did a fantastic job. It looked incredible. And the, the part to me that I just fell absolutely in love with is the, the entire like way that you guys sort of revealed Tolkien and the underwater world and all that. I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like underwater and just water in general since Waterworld has been kind of like the, the next frontier of filmmaking. I feel like we're, mm. we're just now at a point where people are getting very realistic looking underwater scenes. And I mean, you guys were kind of first in the line of, I mean, Little Mermaid's coming out, you have Avatar coming out. There's there's a lot of attention to filming in what appears to be underwater. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And how did you approach those scenes to give it that realistic look? Yeah, I mean, again, I think having us all on the same page from the start, right? Because a lot goes into prep for this, right? Um, underwater. Like, so in prep, you know, we had that directive of like, how, how much can we shoot underwater? So we have that reference. So we did this thing where we did everything that we could, you know, in our testing phase. Um, and this was very important to Ryan. And, you know, obviously, um, Hannah, our production designer was a fan of doing this as well. Like, how much can we shoot underwater? Um, and then also shoot it dry for wet. So putting the camera in water with costumes to see how they react with people to see how they move, how does hair move, um, putting sets underwater, uh, how do those colors look, you know, and then light, how does light fall underwater, distance, camera movement. I mean, just a, you know, a, a laundry list of things. So we did that, um, obviously taking notes and, you know, we lit it a certain way that we, we appreciated, right? So that felt like it was this, this thing that Ryan was interested in is like deep space movie um, underwater, right? You don't yeah. see 
far distances, right? You know, it's like if you see, you know, three miles away and it's sharp and it's clear and bright, that that feels unrealistic because we've all we all have a reference for being in the ocean sometimes in day, sometimes night, but it's not very clear. It's very murky um, and it feels very texturized. So there's you know, the clarity's off, um, turbidity. Um, so all of these things we're testing, we're trying to find these levels uh, that we appreciate. And, you know, we have meetings and we take these notes and then we do it again, um, dry for wet. And, you know, with the same costumes, with the same lighting, um, which was great with one of our um, sets where we have Namor's throne room. Instead of using blue screen, um, uh, production designer and VFX came up with this idea to print um, on the, I forget what kind of material it is, but to print the background on the material so that the bounce back of the light would be accurate, right? Mm-hmm. His red throne room instead of having blue screen there. So that was appreciated and also gives you a better image in camera, in your in-camera plate, right? So all of these things were taken, um, you know, in the water and dry for wet and given to Weta to create a realistic, you know, environment. Um, and I think, you know, with the wet for wet and the dry for wet, like they both live in the edit back to back, like they were used, um, you know, obviously the more references you give VFX, the more lighting references you give, um, the better. So this was kind of like, they used, they called it like Pepsi challenge, right? Like how much can we do? Um, but as you know, shooting underwater is very time consuming, um, you know, there's a safety element to it. Um, and also it's just, I think, you know, it, it would be impossible to be able to shoot every single element um, or scene underwater, but to get as much as you can um, was the agenda. So uh, we started there in prep um, and took notes. Um, but I think the biggest thing that VFX and I talked about, the takeaway is like lighting, right? Um, how light reacts in water. It doesn't just go everywhere, right? The same concept of the fact that, um, you know, you have these shafts of light, you have darker corners, um, you have different levels of exposure and softness and top light versus hard light. And um, so, you know, we all took notes. um, And I think what they came up with, I just love that sequence in the throne where he comes down and the music's playing very loud. Yeah. and he sits down and we did that for real. You know, we did that for real in water. Hannah put that throne, um, that jaw in the tank. We had a 20 foot tank um, and we had our stunt uh, actor on wires um, and we dropped him in the tank and we did that. And then we also did it dry for wet the same way. So, um, yeah, very time consuming, but it was very important to Ryan. You know, he wanted these worlds to feel real. Hannah wanted them to feel real. She had a huge book of references. Um, and I think, you know, to pay homage to just culturally to pay homage, you want it to feel like it actually exists. You know, it's not this fake world that someone just created in um, a VFX bubble. So so it's nice to hear you say that, but a lot of time and effort went into it. So, um, Oh, certainly. I mean, it, it was by far the most compelling to me. I just, I loved the idea of how realistic that you made that look. And it's, I'm actually surprised that there was any, that how much real actual underwater work was in that. Not because it didn't look real, just mm. because I figured that, you know, if you're going to do some dry for wet, you, I mean, yeah, dry for wet, why not, why not do it all? But that's yeah. actually kind of interesting to see. So you weren't just testing underwater. You mm. were actually filming scenes underwater and oh, pairing yes, yeah. them with the dry yeah, yeah. for wet. I think I say testing because in prep, that was, you know, the turnaround to create something like a full scene, right? It takes time. Um, So we started shooting stuff in prep. Um, 
you know, that they could test and then show us stuff and see how we liked it. And Ryan could respond about the turbidity and the lighting and the colors. Um, and then, you know, obviously during principle, we reshot this stuff, right, um, legitimately, um, you know, on our schedule. So all of that testing that we did in prep was based off of that idea to like, you know, look, it's very important that we shoot underwater because this is how it looks. This is, it's also helpful to the actors, right? Because, you know, say you just shoot them dry for wet and you put them on a stage and they're pretending to swim and they're moving around. If you put them in water um, to start and, you know, have them get comfortable and teach them, you know, ways that they can hold their breath, they start to get comfortable with the water. They know how to move, to turn their head, to, to emote, you know, everything's so much different. And you give them a reference for um, doing it dry for wet, which is great because then when they're pretending to float um, in a dry for wet environment, um, they have that to look back to. And I think um, that was always important, you know, important to Ryan, important to VFX. So um, there were a lot of great ideas. And I think um, Jeff Bauman, um, our VFX soup, was just like all hands on deck. And he ended up directing some of that um, underwater second unit stuff. Um, and it was very important to him that this stuff looked real. And, you know, obviously we have other movies coming out where people will see underwater work and they have a reference for it in other films. But uh, we did kind of want to make this special to our film. What did you notice about the quality of light underwater when you were doing your testing? And and how did you incorporate that into the dry for wet? Yeah, I mean, it's the same approach. I've done underwater, like obviously not, um, you know, this big, but I've done it for smaller films, you know, scenes underwater, um, people, you know, swimming underwater, not doing dialogue in underwater world. But I, I find that it's, I have the same approach, right? It's like, I don't like to fill in my shadows. Um, I want there to be a, a very motivated source. Um, and, you know, I want characters to fall in and out of that source. You know, um, sometimes they do go a little bit dark. You fill them in, but naturally, right? Because you don't want it to feel like there's a light underwater. Um, you know, shafts of light are beautiful. And I think we played with that a little bit, you know, because the reality of it is, is if you have the sun and you're hundreds of feet in the depths of the ocean, you're not going to see that shaft of light, right? Um, but so we had a little leeway with that, with the sass dune, um, which is part of their culture. So um, so we did a lot of testing like that, you know. Um, but yeah, I find that it's the same approach. You know, it's it's a taste level. Like at the end of the day, lighting is a taste level, right? You can try all these different things and then you start to find out, you know, what you like. Um, how much do you like a face filled in? Um, if you're in an environment where it's a bit murkier, it's going to wash out, you know, your shadows. So, you know, depending on your stop also the lenses that you use we made a set of anamorphics for our underwater work two times anamorphics is what we shot for our underwater work um we also did some um imax for underwater too in the opening sequence with the cargo ship you know the guys in the big suits um yeah so those were one three anamorphics that we used on the sony venice for our imax ratio for that deliverable so um, you know, that's all a part of testing that stuff, right? To see that level of, you know, shadow detail and how light falls because, you know, light's going through the lens of water, you know, let's call it the lens of water, but then it's also bouncing off your environment. So we had to shoot in a tank and we had blue screens. So it was great. Sometimes we would turn the blue screens on, obviously, um, to get the right levels um, and then turn them off and shoot so that they had a reference of how we wanted it to look without the blue screens on filling in the shadows so much, right? And the blue bounce. 
Um, so it's, I think always as a DP, it's your job to like give them as much as you can to refer back to your original idea, right? Um, because that's the idea is that you might not always be there and you're guiding hundreds of people on different vendors and different artists that are working on this after the fact. So you want to give them references, you know, of how you like your faces to look and how much negative you use. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, sa same approach, you know. I always feel like same approach when you're looking at uh, lighting, whether it's, you know, in water or out of water. Let's talk about the camera and lens package you used in Wakanda Forever. You had just mentioned a moment ago, a moment ago the scenes that you shot in IMAX. There, there are a few there. Um, we actually have a question from Christopher Sousa on Instagram asking oh, exactly right. that. He wants to know, what was it like filming the scenes that you did in IMAX? So, you know, yeah. we'll start there and then we'll talk about the cameras and take it from, take it from there. Yeah, um, I mean... Ryan's a, a huge fan of IMAX. I'm now I get, I'm a fan of IMAX, right? Because I think after... Were you, know, you, you not always, before? Well, I guess I'll put it like this. IMAX now is a little bit different um, than, you know, IMAX as a kid, right? We grew up, it's like you're shooting IMAX. So it's like you have the big camera, it's IMAX. Um, true IMAX. Um, yeah. Now we have different cameras approved for IMAX. So it's a little different. But now that I have been involved in that process, right... Um, and I shoot with a Sony Venice and I love that camera. Um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, it's something that bumped me at first. Cause I'm like, if it's IMAX, it's gotta be true IMAX. Right. Um, so, you know, we did a bunch of testing, um, to figure out which lenses to use, which camera to use. We came around to shooting with Sony Venice cause it was, gave us our one nine deliverable, but also I still wanted to keep consistency with the lensing. Right. I didn't want it to like cut to the IMAX sequences and all of a sudden it's like the ratio jumps You're using the same camera, but you're just getting height, but then the lenses feel different. So, um, we modified and we got, we decided on the one three anamorphic squeeze for the one nine deliverable. And we were still able to keep some of that kind of emotional anamorphic quality. Um, but it didn't feel like it jumped so much, right? It didn't bump so much. Um, and yeah, and I tested a lot of different options to figure out how to get to that, um, you know, end goal. And I think why I came around is because you have some of these sequences that feel larger than life. Um, we ended up having some IMAX underwater sequences after we looked at them in post, cause some of them were all CG, we could extend them. Um, and it just, it felt so epic. It was a really nice touch to, you know, kind of with the uh, real photography and we do jump back, you know, in the edit, if, if for those who see IMAX, um, you know, it's not like we have the sequence in IMAX and then it cuts to the two times, you know, there are some sequences in the third act where it goes back and forth. Um, but I felt like, it, it worked, you know, so it's like to go through that whole process to like pick a camera lenses to pick, you know, Ryan and I put a lot of thought into like, which sequences would be IMAX. Um, I was very important to him. So I think after I went through all that, I was like, okay, I see the value. Um, even if you're not sh shooting on film, you know, yeah. um, what yeah. drew you to the Sony Venice as your option for filming? I mean, you had mentioned the one nine obviously, but, but what else? Was there other attributes of the camera that just lended itself perfectly to this story that you're telling? Yeah, I mean, I've shot, you know, they're tools. Everything's a tool, right? Um, and we have a lot of them. I mean, you shoot, so you you know, like, they all say different things, right? And you, you kind of figure out just, you know, the ins and outs of each tool, and then you figure out what you appreciate. 
um, and what bumps you or doesn't or, you know, kind of what's helping tell your story visually. So I've been shooting with other cameras and then a director on a commercial um, introduced me to the Sony Venice. Um, and so he called the camera. He's like, I've been using this camera. I love it. Um, try it out. And so I did. And I think at the time I shot, um, you know, a 16.9 deliverable with anamorphics on the on the uh, Sony Venice. And so I still had that anamorphic feeling, but um, not um, my um, not my 239 widescreen image. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, this is it just uh, the color gamut. And I think, you know, I just appreciated just the filmic quality that I was getting from the camera. And so then I kept shooting with it, kept testing it. It sees beautifully into the shadows. Um, again, the color science, uh, with, uh, Tom pools, a colorist I work with. So he gave me a LUT. Um, and at the time, you know, I asked, um, and started shooting with that and just really appreciate it. So when Loki came around, um, my director on that was, was down with that. And, you know, in that scenario, I got to really test it a lot and was very happy with it. So, um, Ryan was very open to that camera and, you know, he looked at some references, so he had a kind of idea of how it performed. Um, but yeah, I just find that I get very filmic images from it, but also really good colors and, uh, with the LUT that I like to use, I think, you know, it helps me make the image look more like film, which is always my agenda, pretty much. Have you played with the Venice 2? Uh, I have, yeah. I didn't. We Did we use any? Um, we, were, we were so fast moving. I think they tried to get some out to me on the shoot, um, and I'm not sure I ever used it on the main unit. Um, but recently I have used for smaller projects, um, and it's amazing as well. Like, um, obviously higher ISO, which is always appreciated. And I think as far as like the shadow detail and um, what you get out of it is great because sometimes you're just in those low light situations. So um, if you can keep rolling, it's always, you know, production likes that. Did you get a chance to play with the Rialto for Wakanda Forever? Oh yeah, we use Rialto all the time. Um, and I've used it previous to those projects um, a lot, like when I was you know, starting out and using it on commercials. Um, and my A camera operator appreciates that build, right? So you can either have it non-Rialto, where it's the camera which is heavier and a little bit bigger, um, or you can go Rialto and you know, um, it's very, very small and you can tether um, to the main unit. You know, uh, so he he appreciated that, and you know, it just allows you to kind of rig cameras in smaller spaces, and you know, on a movie like this, um, that's always appreciated. Um, and you know, obviously, you see, we have a lot of our flying um, sequences where we would rig cameras on the sides and stuff. So it was great. Yeah, I'm I'm just a big fan. Um, and again, I feel like you know, my agenda and also Ryan too appreciating it, it's like every choice that I make is so that it can look like film, in my opinion, you know, like how, how can this look more textured and filmic? Like we were saying, those films that we appreciated growing up. I think one of the ways that you guys really added a lot of mood and drama into it was how much was at night. Like there's, there's quite a bit, there's quite a few yeah. battles even just at night. And I'd love to hear from you, you know, the gear choices you made and sort of your approach to filming those night scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love night sequences. Um, you know, I think, you know, lighting plays such a huge role, you know, when you do night exteriors, right? Because, you, have, you know, you have to light it, right? You know, and everyone pays attention to how it's lit. In some scenarios, um, 
you know, you can make it more stylized. In some scenarios, you're wanting it to look more realistic, like the sequence uh, when Namor's first revealed. Um, and, you know, it should feel like it. they're out there in the middle of nowhere and they're just been, being lit by the moon and the fire, right? Um, and we all know when you go out in the middle of nowhere, your eye adjusts to the moonlight. And sometimes if it's a full moon, it can be pretty bright and the shadows can be sharper. So, um yeah, I've, again, it's like a taste level, right? It's like you're always trying to make something look realistic so the audience doesn't think it's shot on a stage if, if some of these sequences are on a stage. Um, or if you're doing, you know, night exteriors outside and you have uh, big blue screens that the extension feels realistic to the lighting that you're doing on set, right? Because that's also the key is to have the extension match what you're doing um, mm-hmm. in camera. But, yeah, I have great crew. I mean, these these are bigger night um, night exterior sequences that require a lot of rigging. I've worked with my gaffer for years. My rigging team's amazing. My uh, rigging gaffer, my key grip, you know, it's like, it's all, it's all in, right? Everyone's on board to make this look real, but also to, to be able to have options on the day, right? I like to, you know, the way that we like to work is to set ourselves up to create contrast, right? So you have options to turn off lights, to create contrast, to move this direction, to, you know, move that direction, look different ways, but also turn lights on and off based off of um, the contrast ratio that you're after. So this all takes a lot of time and rigging and thought um, when you're doing huge sets like this that are, you know, 300 feet long and whatnot. So we're talking about big soft boxes on cranes and options to bring in big negative to shape things. So, you know, shaping things on a bigger level with m- multiple um, characters, um, it's not just like taking one light, right? And like, shaping a face, you know, um, which we also do, you know, you can light broadly and give that ambient exposure, but also on the floor, you do a little bit more for the face on the close up. So yeah, I mean, it, again, it's taste, but it's also having great crew and making sure everyone knows what that, you know, um, kind of visual languages that you're trying to tell. So I find that, you know, in that sequence, we ended up, we were supposed to shoot out in the wild, um, and which was great because we're always trying to do as much as we can in realistic environment. Um, but because of our schedule shift, we ended up shooting it in the colder months. So that sequence was on stage um, and Hannah did a great job of making it look real, right? You know, with greens. But then also my gaffer, you know, is great because, you know, creating that soft top light, but to taste, right? You know, I think it it's at a level. Um, and then in combination with Tom Poole's LUT, I really do feel like you see into the shadows. Um, you know, you have Namor there and he's lit only by the moonlight and a little bit of an edge from the fire that reaches right up the embankment. Um, but he looks so mysterious and it's beautiful. And then also the anamorphic lenses. We use this one really special um, lens that Ryan really loved, 35 millimeter. Um, that's pre-expansion. Um, and you know, you can get very close to it and it's just such a beautiful lens. And, um, I think the way light, um, how it handles light, it's very creamy, very dreamy. So if you know which scene I'm, t- I'm talking about when he yeah. comes out of the water, it's very dark. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that, that Ryan wanted that to be dark. He wanted it to be mysterious. And, um, you know, I, I've said, I think, you know, that you can, get as much information about giving someone darkness as you can, you know, light, because sometimes it's not just about seeing everything. It's like the audience needs to see everything. So they understand it. I think you can understand stuff by giving them darkness as well. And, you know, um, having your audience be smart and really giving them that emotional feeling of what you get from that darkness. So, 
Um, yeah, give him yeah. the emotion. Let him work for it a little bit. I mean, there's yeah, nothing there wrong. Then, yeah. There's nothing wrong with watching it. And in fact, I think it's 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 quite like alluring to me to like sit there and yeah. actually really look into the scene. It also hides a lot of the visual effects, and it just yeah. it's so I don't know. It just the mystery in some of those battle scenes and just like a creature just coming out of the sea in the middle of the night. Like it just it looks really good and it's compelling. And I don't think there's that much of it out there in mm. movies of that you know, caliber. And we actually have a question that's sort of related to this. Mm. You may have answered some of it already. Emma Levy Production is asking, how do you approach lighting for such an intense storyline, but also appeal to the Marvel crowd? And I think what she's probably getting at there is that there, there's a general expectation of what one may see in a Marvel film. And when it doesn't happen, um, in cases like Wakanda Forever, you it sort of bucks the trend a little bit. And it's mm. appealing to you know, certainly filmmakers and people listening to Go Creative Show. Um, but yeah, I mean, you may have answered some of that, but I'd like to get your thoughts on this now that we're just kind of talking about lighting for these intense moments. Yeah, no, no, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you have to also, like, you have to think about it as, like, director-driven, right? Ryan's such a brave filmmaker, um, very emotional filmmaker, you know? So when you have a leader like that with that type of agenda, um, and you know, you're a, a great collaborator, right? And you want to push the envelope and you want to go a little darker and you want to, um, create this mystery. And it's also, there's such a, there's so much sorrow and, you know, that the characters are carrying through the whole journey of the, the entire film. Right. So it's like with that comes light, but with that comes darkness too. So, you know, he was very brave with that early on. And, and I tend to like doing that, right? Like I want to be, on a team that is going to be brave and um, to to tell the story, right? And and make choices that are going to ask their audience to like, you know, come along with us for this ride. Trust us, you know, we'll get you there. And so I felt like that in making the film with him. And I feel like that's how the audience is responding. And so they have a reference for every other film that they've seen, but they're always different filmmakers, right? You know, um, they Marvel does such a great job of, there's so many diverse filmmakers that have, have done these films. So what's so great about that is they support those filmmakers, right, in their vision at the time. And I felt like that on my first project. I felt like that on this project. But it's also your leader, right? You know, um, they, you know, he he's just so great in, like, making people feel so much a part of telling that story, you know. Um, he sees everyone. He makes films for everyone. So I find that, like, you know, when you have that, when you feel supported and trusted as a filmmaker early on, you can make brave choices like that, right? And you have great crew to help you execute those. So, um, you know, you're always aware that you're making this film under that umbrella, but you're also telling a story and, and you want this story um, to be unique. You know, it's like you don't, you know, the audience is smart. You know, you know how smart these fans are, right? Um, and Especially think, with big franchises yeah. and Marvel films. I mean, people are just so passionate about it. Yes, you're yes. going ha to have a passion with these films that you just don't see in other films. Mm. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, and Ryan knows this. He's very savvy. Um, he's a cinephile. And, you know, um, he's very aware of all of that stuff. But also the fact that, like, we're introducing a new world. We're introducing... Um, you know, uh, different cultures, different, 
just, you know, in, in our flashback sequences, in, you know, just new costumes and production design, you know, and all of that, wanting it to feel real, but also vibrant and textural and like dark. And this is how stuff exists, you know, um, how we're used to seeing it when we look at photography or references, like realistic references, right? So I think trying to infuse that in this, in a big umbrella like Marvel, where there are VFX is so great, right? Because you have such a broad audience that gets to see it, right? And when you are brave like that, um, you when you get the response and over overall people are connecting, it, it's really satisfying to know that those choices uh, were the right ones and that he was on the right track, you know, from the beginning. And, you know, we trusted that and um, he trusted us. So it was great to see people uh, responding like this, yeah. We've got a question about lenses from Xavier Jimenez, um, wants to know the lenses used for the young Namor flashback mm. scenes. And I know yes. that was that was something you wanted to speak about, just that whole sequence oh, in yeah, general. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about that scene. Um, why, you know, we always ask our guests before they come on to bring up a couple of scenes that yes. they, you know, felt passionate about, want to discuss. This was one of yours, so I'd love to know why. And then also we can address uh, Xavier's question about lenses. Yeah, um, I, I just, I'm so in love with that sequence. Um, when we shot it, I was in love with it because uh, we got to go to Puerto Rico. And I think it was invigorating because it was towards the end of our shoot. And obviously, we had a very long shoot. Um, and I Not a bad way home. to spend the end of a shoot in Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And shooting like, you know, real photography, meaning like you're out there, you're in the elements. Um, you know, when you see the ocean, when you see people swimming in it, it's real. That's an ocean. Um, and when you're in the jungle, you're in the jungle. So, um, yeah, I think. Hannah and um, Ryan and I were very excited about that, that whole sequence. Um, and so, you know, also the energy that comes with filming in those environments, right? You kind of like feel like when you're younger and you're doing work and you're doing an indie and you're running around. And so we had a little bit of that in that sequence. Um, and so I wanted to, I think, you know, it was important to Ryan that we had this kind of through line of the, that the lenses also match this through line of grief and the fog of grief that can come over you sometimes. Um, and, you know, it was very important that these sequences be dreaming. So in our main uh, set that we modified the T-series, you know, it already had those attributes. So taking it to another level, I think what they're responding to is um, I had one particular vintage lens, um, and it's a macro 55 um and Panatar. And so we use that lens for those sequences, those sequences of the boy. Um, and, and I know that's what they're talking about. Um, and they are a bit softer and dreamier and you shoot mm -hmm. them a little bit more wide open and they, you know, it's the, it feels like a dream, but also very alluring, you know, a lot of fall off and, um, very bendy on the edges and also they're macro. So you can get pretty close, like 18 inches or something, I think. Um, so, you know, I think it works because he's going back in time, right? So you kind of need to introduce an even more aggressive texture of lens if you're going to do a flashback because our main set, for instance, had a lot of character and dreamy qualities to it. But um, I tend to shoot a lot with the, that lens, um, and I mostly shoot Panavision. Um, I think I, I shot a whole movie with that lens, Teen Spirit. I shot majority of it with that lens. So there are many of them. I think there's like only... Um, a few in the world are under 10. And so um, they can be finicky and they're all very different. So 
Um, yeah, I respond a lot to that sequence just because after I'd seen him cut it together with the music, it's just, it's so badass. And I've never seen a sequence like that in a Marvel film. Um, and so beautiful. And he did such a great job. So I remember uh, the first time I saw it, I was blown away because I was there shooting it and loved it. But then cut together when he goes back and forth from uh, the flashback to the hut, um, it's great. And also the hut, I like that's environment as well because the light is you know goes in and out of the hatched roof um so, yeah, yeah it's a, it's almost like another movie in the movie you're watching yeah, yeah. and then all of a sudden you're like oh i wasn't expecting that it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. it just yeah it really stands out as its own piece and mm. it's it's just so beautiful so I'm, I'm not surprised at all that people are responding to it yeah um you had a couple other scenes here that you also called out let's let's choose one more you had um uh let's see you had the firing scene yes. in the tribal council room, and then you also had M'Baku and Cherie in the um, uh, Jabberland Council after she reveals, she, okay, yeah, so let's just pick one of them because we're starting to run out of time, and I'd love okay. to, you know, I want you to have an opportunity to talk about a scene that you're particularly passionate about and tell us why. Yeah, I think the, the scene when Okoye gets fired, um, and it's just such an amazing performance by both so, of them. Uh, it, it, yeah. it gets you. It really yeah, gets Angela, you when you see it. Just, um, it's in the trailer, right? You get a little bit of that in the trailer. Um, but I remember, and you know, I always, whenever I see it or talk about that scene, I remember exactly on the day, and I was watching that, right? And you know, you're the DP, you're there, you're, you know, you're photographing it. You, got multiple cameras but I was watching it like it was a movie right I felt like I was watching a movie as I was looking back and forth right and looking at the monitors um and I think it's so rewarding when you can take yourself out of that right you know and you put yourself in a different place because as you know the more that you get involved in filmmaking the more there's that kind of like separation from reality you know you're like you see through all of it like you watch films you're looking at the lighting you're picking things apart you can never um, so, just enjoy a movie. Again. Yes, right. Like, it, but but when they're really good, um, and I have obviously seen some, you know, outside of working, right, um, few and far between. But you're like, wow, that was really good because you just you were just watching it. You're just responding. Um, so I remember that day, and I was blown away, and I felt like you know when you have these great performances, and the scene is so amazing. It's beautiful um, scene and the space and the production design and, you know, my crew and the lighting and, you know, you, the lens just knows where to go. It just finds itself. Right. And so that lens that I love, the 35 that Ryan loves, um, you know, I remember there's a shot of Okoye and she's got that one tear, mm. right. And we're a little bit lower and I love to center punch and it's just, it's, it's in the perfect spot, right. It's just, it's the perfect spot. It's a little, um, you know, it's very dreamy, right? And she, you know, the whole weight of the world has just fallen on her. She feels like she's, um, you know, uh, it. it's just, I think as I was sitting there, I was like, this is going to be amazing. And then you see it cut together. Um, and it's just one of my favorite scenes, like cinema history scene where you, people can play that little scene over and over again. Um, so, yeah, I think when you have those moments on a project like this, it feels really nice. Like you feel like you're watching some David Lean film, right? And you're just sitting there right, watching it. Um, so, I think yeah. such a great choice in that scene, too, is to shoot up 
toward her because, you know, it's in a moment where she's sort of deflated. And like you said, the weight of the world is coming down on her, yet she is still shot in a way where she's heroic and powerful. And I I loved that choice. I thought that was such a great choice for that scene. Yeah. Well, she comes from being on the ground, right? So she's she's kneeling, right? And she's looking up at her. And then as she rises, um, that's nice that you say that because she is still such a powerful character and woman, um, but she failed everybody. But she's still in, in that failure. You know, she's still very important um, and uh, strong woman. Um, so that's nice, yeah, to put it that way, yeah. Now, I feel a little connection to this film because I don't know if you know this, but we are based in Boston. And so when I started seeing that Cambridge stuff, I'm like, I know that spot. I know that spot. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not easy to shoot there, I hear, because like they don't always approve. It's challenging. It's definitely yeah, challenging. Yeah. I mean, what was what was your experience like? Yeah, it was great. I mean, like I mentioned before, um, you know, we had, you know, we have different units or I think I met melding in another talk that I did with this talk. I'm not sure if we went over the units here, but um you know, we scouted that early on, um, and Ryan and I, and I was able, we were able to see the campus, take pictures, figure out where we wanted to shoot things. Um, and then obviously you do hands off, hand off to your second unit, right. And giving them all your notes and your lighting notes and all that stuff. So my parents have lived in Boston. They now moved back to California, but they lived there for 10 years. Um, and so I was very familiar with Boston, but obviously I've never shot there. Um, but I love it. Right. And there's so much great architecture in that little sequence and along those streets and then the bridge and the skyline. So to be able to capture that and have our second unit go there and be allowed to shoot around MIT. And then we recreated that bridge um, on our back lot um, for the fight sequence, uh, which I think turned out really amazing. Right. So they built us that um, that stretch of road probably had like 250 feet of that highway on the bridge uh, with our practical fixtures and then did extension for the skyline. Um, and it, in, as you can see, like the skyline has the quality of the anamorphic lenses. And um, I think, you know, we, we brought, we sat the, um, the density down and you can feel the texture of the night. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it turned out really well. Um, so I, I like that you have, you know, the Boston aspect and then you have, we were able to shoot that sequence with the car tumbling on our back lot um, and all real, you know, we did, we flipped that car, we shot Phantom and they meshed together very nicely. Um, but, and then also Reeves Garage, that was actually shot in Atlanta. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, the sequence works really well between second unit and our unit. Um, but also just to get another cityscape in there, I think it's always amazing on these films, right? Cause you have so, so much story to tell. Um, but also it's, there, there are sequences that are just fun, right? You, you, you have fun watching Marvel film. Um, and Ryan did a great job, I think, of like that little storytelling beat. And then we go, um, prior to that, we go in her garage and it was his idea to do that steady cam shot that feels like a one I think it yeah. only has a couple cuts in it, but we shot it like a one Um, and I love that, right? When the camera's bouncing back and forth, um, with the characters and, you know, it's very dark. So it's very cool. And our last couple of minutes, I just want to talk to you about your kind of your entry into this industry, because I was reading that you started your early days in an advertising agency and you went to AFI kind of later in your twenties. And that, that's interesting to me because I feel like, 
I don't know. I just feel like with age comes wisdom. And as you get through your 20s, that that sort of youthful, like, I can do anything kind of fades away as you mm. get later in your 20s. And to have somebody go into such like such a dreamer kind of career at that age and start then, it must have given you a different perspective in this whole, you know, in filmmaking in general, in this particular industry. Almost like it, it must have been almost a little bit more realistic in your entry into filmmaking because of, you know, getting into AFI a little bit later. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that in general? Is there something about kind of igniting this career a little bit later in life that maybe changed your approach? That's a great question. Good job. <laughs> well, no, I've never been asked it like that, but I think, you know, I, I find that, you know, now in my career, I do a lot of talks, like I'll go back to AFI and I love talking to students, and I was just in Poland at Camry Maj, and there's a lot of young girls in the audience that come up to me and talk afterward. And, um, yeah, I think it's important to always reflect at why you were just genuinely interested in the career to begin with. And then also, you're right, like later on, you do have a different perspective because I went to school for art history, right, and I thought I wanted to do one thing, and then I realized that wasn't for me, and then I took a film genre course, and I started poking around, um, you know, looking at films, and we would write about films. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, it's like I just found, like, my biggest inspiration a little later, right? You know, because at AFI, I was 27, and a lot of uh, students in my class um, were coming from undergrads in film right into it. So I started out, you know, not with as much knowledge as them. So I learned a lot from them and I made a lot of mistakes and they helped me because I didn't have a big portfolio or reel. Like a lot of it was based in photography or like little small films I'd make with my um, friends. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of trial and error, but as your career grows, right, I think what's important is like that confidence and, you know, that you speak of. And as you get older, um, you just more kind of secure and confident in your ideas, right? And so much of being a DP and being on sets is trying to help everyone understand what you're thinking in your head um, because they need to know, right? You need to know how to explain that so that there's a like through line in the visuals and visual language. So um, yeah, I suppose because I was a little bit older, I was a little bit more like driven to like succeed at that, right? Because I, I quit my job in advertising and I told my parents, I'm like, I'm going to become a DP. And they're like, okay, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> what's um, that exactly? What does that mean again? Okay, sure, you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm sure. Like I want to learn, you know, get some loans, some great loans and figure this out. Um, and then I was lucky enough to shoot a feature in between my first and second year, which gave me lots of confidence and we shot on film. So essentially I left the program with this like film, you know, that I could take out there and be like, I'm a DP now, you know? Um, you know, I hadn't done it very much, but I think, you know, um, baby steps. So yeah, I think it's always, I think my path helped me in the way that I needed it to. Like some people started younger, some people go to film school, they don't, but I needed that environment, I think for me to like learn from my peers and to make mistakes and, um, yeah, to figure it out in, in film school, um, that was appropriate for me. And I think, Without that, I wouldn't be here today because that, that's a big part of my journey. Um, but I always tell students, you know, it's like you can figure out how to do this on your own, meaning like, you know, it's they're like, you know, should I go out there and meet this person, meet that person? Or like, you know, how do you what do you suggest? And I was like, take your camera and walk around and look at lighting and capture stuff and frame it and figure out what you like and how you like to frame. And that's personal to you. And once you figure that out, then someone can hire you and then you can, you know. 
um, share that with them. But, uh, but yeah, great question. Well, a great interview. We really appreciate you coming on. The film is yeah, no. Wakanda Forever, obviously. Like, we have to say that again. Everybody knows it. Everyone's probably seen it. They've probably seen it multiple times. Like, I know my producer, Connor, I think he's seen it three times now. Ooh. Go, <laughs> so, Connor. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, yeah. No, but I really appreciate it. I love your work, Autumn. Um, I know we tried to get you in for Loki, but let's get you back on your next project because I think there's yeah. still so much to talk about and you're just, you're great on the air and you're very forthcoming with your answers and we really yeah. appreciate that. And of course, thank you no to all problem. the people that ask questions. There are a few that have yet to be unanswered. We just didn't have the time, but it is what it is. And you can find Autumn online on uh, Instagram. So certainly you can ask her your questions through there too. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate it, Autumn. Thank you so much no for being yeah, on. Yeah, no, it's such a great show um, and very unique. So I think it's nice to be able to talk about like story and technical stuff, but also just everything. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Autumn Durald Arkapa, the director of photography for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And of course, all of you guys that asked your questions. I know we were able to feature three on the show, but there are others. I got them all here on my phone. I see you. I hear you. Uh, Yan Lo, thank you so much for your question. Andy O Digital, why did you pick the Sony Venice? We talked about that. Um, Cinema Zay, what was your approach to low lighting scenes? We talked about that. So I think all of your questions were answered. I hope they were. And if they weren't, certainly let us know. We'll do our best to connect you, but you could find her on Instagram. You can ask her yourself, but we really appreciate it. Whether we asked your question on the show or not, thank you for asking it and continue to ask because we really do love the questions from all of you guys. And I try to incorporate it into the interview as much as possible. And with that said, I also want to thank Connor Crosby, who is our producer. You could find him at ignitionvisuals.com. I got it all screwed up. Ignitionvisuals.com. And Dave Siegel, Siegel Sound. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show, all things Go Creative Show, at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, I'm at Ben Consoli, at B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I, on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we will see you next time on the next episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>